Well, I'm going to, hopefully this won't spill. If it does, I'm sorry. I have a bit of a cold that I've had for quite a while now. And I'm going <clears> to, <throat> pardon me, I may need it. Well, hi, my name is Eric Hansen. I'm one of the pastors here. And just want to extend my welcome uh, and add it to Jane's and the rest of First Press's. We're really glad you're here to worship with us on this soggy weekend, filled probably with all sorts of events. I know the Hanson family have, um, we have been at a graduation and a track meet, and it seems like everything we get to do is outside, and that's really great. Um, <clears throat> we are at that season, sort of in the life of sort of an American culture, especially a university town where Things seem to be kind of in transition. People are pivoting from one thing to the next. One thing is ending and to start something else, right? So as we've been in this season, and we know we'll be in it for at least a couple more weeks, we've uh, taken this time to do a series we simply have titled, What is Your Doxology? And in the doxologies in the New Testament, as um, Joe was saying, they all have a very similar form to them. And Sometimes we find them in the middle of a letter. Sometimes we find them at the end. But whichever case it is, it's always it's sort of a pivot. If it's, if it's in the middle, it's the pivot from one big idea to how we live out that idea. And if it's at the end, it's usually a pivot from we've been gathered together in worship and now you're going to be sent out to go do this thing we've been talking about and, and learning about. And, and those doxologies have almost always this very similar three-part structure as Joe was saying. First, they address God, and we want to glorify God in it. Second, there's a list or some sort of a litany of the kinds of attributes of God that, that we want to sort of recognize. There's ways that God is invested in us. There's things that God is doing. There are things that are true about God's character, and that's why we want to address God, and finally, we want to give Him our glory. We want to lift Him up and praise Him. Last week we started in this, uh, with this doxology with uh, the, um, the letter um, from Jude, tiny, short, little letter, about 25 verses long. And today is a doxology that comes from the letter to the Romans, much, much longer. And um, Romans, is, many people consider it Paul sort of his magnum opus. It is the letter that has like uh, the, the deepest theology, sort of the most sort of intense sort of logic that's connected to it. And Jane, very wisely, as we got started with our series last week, said if we're going to understand these doxologies, especially the ones that, that come at the end, it's going to be good for us to, to summarize what it is that's led us to this moment of doxology. Jane had 24 verses. I have 16 chapters. It's going to be great. <clears throat> Here we go. Paul starts in these first four chapters of the book of Romans by reminding us that no matter what it may appear like, that God will remain faithful and is faithful to his covenant promises. God is going to keep on working and weaving and wind his way to a creation that is renewed and flourishing and beautiful. And he's going to do that, he goes on to say, in spite of the fact that every kind of human being has broken and turned their back from these covenant promises. Because Paul is a Jew, and in Jewish anthropology, there's only two kinds of people. There's Jewish people, 
and there are Gentiles. He says both Jew and Gentile are, are completely set aside now from God. He says, but God is working in the same way that God worked in Abraham to begin and to keep a promise that God is still at work now, today, to work his salvation and redemption for us and for all of creation. Then we get into chapters 5 and chapters 8, and he says God, is, God has set up this covenant, this series of promises that are supposed to be worked and sort of witnessed to by the Jewish people, but now God has been doing them finally and fully in Jesus Christ. God has set up to keep, not only make the covenant, but then keep it, to address the problem of sin and brokenness and the, the consequences of what it's like to be a human being ever since that first moment of broken relationship. It goes on to say that we can now be redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, the covenant keeper. And once we've been redeemed and we find our lives identified with his, we, we're identified with him in his death, and so we also are identified with him in his life, we now get to be a whole new kind of covenant people where Jew and Gentile are actually together as a brand new people of God. Brand new. Together. And he says we now are encouraged and empowered and able to live by the Spirit. You've never read Romans chapter 8, or maybe it's been quite some time. Maybe just make a little note to yourself to read Romans 8 today as one way to, to celebrate the work of the Spirit in our lives and in the life, lives around us. And then he takes a bit of an important detour in chapters 9 through 11 where he says, in light of everything that God is doing with God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, creating a new one people out of the two, it's, it's really confusing to understand what, what is going on with those Jews who still reject the hope and promise of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that, that God is still working his promises in ways that are mysterious to us. He's still working to, to pull all of his people to himself, and that's going to happen. In fact, their rejection even is, is part of that, but somehow, some way, God's glory will win out, and all the people will come in to be part of this covenant people. It is for that reason. Those of you, those of you who are Jews, especially those of you who are Gentiles, all you get to do is humbly be patient with the Jewish people. There's no room for arrogance. There is no room to set them aside in anger. The gift that we have has come from the Jews. Then in chapters 12 through 16, he goes on and says, this, this community that's now been created by God, this, this new covenant community of Jew and Gentile merged together in this beautiful way, we, we must now learn how to live as that new people. We, we are those new people. Now we must learn how to live as those new people. We must come together now and worship him in spirit and in truth. We must be transformed, he says at the beginning of this section, by the renewing of our mind. And then at the end, 
He has this doxology right at the very end of this letter. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's a tangle, isn't it? Let's pray, shall we? And we're going to dive in. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of your word. We are glad that it is certain and secure and established. For all flesh is like grass. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And so we pray, God, that your word would be imprinted on our hearts, minds, and imaginations today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay, every commentator and translator of, um, of the New Testament says that this final couple verses in Romans is an absolute grammatical train wreck. And it's not any better when you try to take a train wreck from Greek and move it into the English. It just continues to feel like a train wreck. This is one of those passages where, where Paul, even at the end, is so eager to get out so much stuff, it's like hard to really understand how it all fits. But if you look at it, step back just a little bit, you still see that same pattern, right? Now to God, now to him, he says, who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel? So what, what are the goods in this passage? What are the things that we can say and discover about the gospel and about God that are, are good for us to then take away and carry with us as a doxology? There's, there's probably a lot. I want to point out three to you, three things we can learn about the gospel today. First, we praise God for a strengthening gospel we praise God for an interstitial gospel. Yeah, I know, word nerd. Stick with me. And we praise God for a contagious gospel. They're all in there. First, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. Paul says, this is my gospel. This is what I've come to know and learn and understand about Jesus. I'm, I'm not making it up. It actually is news about Jesus. And, and now it's my gospel I want to share with you. And now, friends, I hope I can say it's my gospel that I want to share with you. Well, he says, to that God, to him who is able to establish you. That word establish is actually also the word to strengthen. And for Paul, it's almost a technical word for the way Paul is invested in the church. And if he's invested in the church, he's also invested in these same ways for the people in the church. For you can't have a strong and strengthening church without a strong and strengthening people. So what's true here for the church, I've come to believe, is also true of the individuals in it. 
And he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, he, he uses this word, this phrase, it sort of means rooted and deepened and strengthened and bound together. He, he uses it in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Galatians, Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 3, two times in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and chapter 3. The Lord is able to, to strengthen you. He's able to strengthen you in faith uh, against error. He's able to strengthen you in holiness uh, against temptation. He's able to strengthen you in courage against persecution. See, God is invested in this covenant people, this new people, these people like you and like me. I, I'm a Gentile. Probably most of you are too. And God is able and working to strengthen you and this church. Oftentimes what we really want to do is we want to rely on our own strength and, and our, our own planning. We, we see a circumstance. We see something that's, that's difficult. We see something that we really need to do. And what do we do? We sort of like rub the magic genie of God and hope he's going to give us the right thing. It's like, I want to just do this, God. Will you let me? Last week, John, Jane talked about the, the danger of just following our hearts. So the Lord is going to strengthen us in faith against error. How many of us don't know what it's like to be tempted? Don't we all? Don't all of us have some version in, in life where we see things, we find ourselves, our hearts, our minds, kind of moving in that direction? Have you gone to that website again? Yeah, it might, it might be pornography, but also just might be Pinterest. Do you find yourself and your heart and your imaginations sort of clicking and clicking and clicking and you look at these things and, and then you, you set it aside like, oh I, oh, I just wasted five minutes, 20 minutes, two hours. Like, what am I doing? And so you erase the history and you say, I'm going to try harder tomorrow. I'm going I'm to do this better tomorrow. we are strengthened in holiness against temptation, friends. It's not our own work. It's, it's God who is able to strengthen us. Probably many of us have had some sort of an encounter with someone who, who's surprised and disappointed and maybe even angry in some way that we are a Christian. And oftentimes we find ourselves sort of slinking away from that. Jesus Christ, the one who is able to strengthen us, gives us courage in the midst of our persecution. He's able to strengthen us and give us a deep, deep taproot that, that will not break or fall in the midst of our hardship. We live in an era, in the spiritual era, where we want to be actually very forgiving and, and almost sort of like deny the fact that spiritual life is really hard. In days gone by, there was this man named William Gurnall who was not especially a uh, remarkable man in the 1600s. 
who was just a pastor that probably no one ever would have written about, kind of like me, except he did this long exposition on these 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says to put on the full armor of God. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, put on all of your own armor to strengthen you. He says, put on the full armor of God who will strengthen you. And William Gurnall wrote this classic that theologians still read and study and draw from today called The Full Armor of God. And it is, on these about six little tiny verses, 650 pages to make sure that every phrase, every verb, every idea is milked to the bones so that we might know how desperate the Lord is to make sure that we are strengthened. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, he says. The first thing I want you to know is this is the the primary heart and character of God as he's working us together, both as a church and as individuals. We follow a God, we proclaim a gospel that is strengthening to us. You do not have to remain in your sin and you don't have to do it by yourselves. We have been given the full armor of God. So we praise God for a gospel that is strengthening. Second, we we praise God for a gospel that is interstitial. That is a totally nerdy word. And uh, last week, as I was sitting in the back listening to Jane preach, and I was just so gratified by her singing this doxology, and so bold to sing that doxology and intersperse some of her own life story in it. And what struck me, I, this word sort of just leapt up for me, like from my college days, this word interstitial. See, what she was saying and proclaiming that we see again today in this passage is, is that God is actually in the in-between. The, the glory and the hardship are kind of all intermixed. And the word interstitial is, um, well, it's used in a couple different ways. The first way that I learned it actually is the way, it's, in bio, it's a biological term, it's a biology term. And it means like the tiny little spaces in between other things, especially, for example, the space between grains of sand where tiny little organisms live. The interstitial spaces between literally grains of sand. When I taught, uh, when I was rather a youth pastor uh, in in Berkeley, a lot of grad students were part of my um, youth ministry team. And their favorite word was this word, liminal. They use liminal all the time. I'm, I'm in these, this in-between place, between here. I, I really am sort of just like trying to exist in this liminal space. They use it all the time. It's like you had to know that word if you are going to be a grad student in Berkeley. And what we are praising God for here is a God who's interstitial, who's in the in-between places. Now, you may have missed it. Let me draw your attention to these three little phrases that are in this doxology. There's a mystery that's been hidden and now revealed and then made known. God has been working from the beginning in all of it. Even when you can't see it, even when you don't know, even when you're not sure. God is at work to take the mystery and reveal his grace and mercy to you that you may actually know it to the core. 
I think this is good news for our graduates. Raise your hand if you know, are related to, or have celebrated a graduation uh, in the last 10 days or maybe the next week. Raise your hand. Hi, so we can see. See, see that? Now here's the thing. Every graduate's like, I have no idea what's next. I'm in this interstitial space between this thing and this thing. I don't know what my roommate's going to be like. I don't know if I'm going to like my job. I, I don't know when I'm going to get a job. We live in the place of this mystery and this wondering and this worry. But friends, praise be to God who's able to strengthen us and who lives and is working in these in-between interstitial places. It's also good news for those of us who are widows and widowers, for those who find ourselves in extraordinarily hard times. We can't always see why we're going through what we're going through. We can't always understand why God is doing these things, or should I even blame God? Should I talk to God about it? Should I include God in this? What, how am I supposed to think about my deep pain? How can I understand this confusing place where I now am? This, this is not the plan this illness is a, a complete and total interruption. This, this death and now clouds everything that I think will be true for the next couple of decades of my life. But praise be to God who will strengthen you and who works in mysterious ways, who's revealing his character and will make it known to you. Peter says it like this. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is not, the God that we worship is not slow. He's, he's willing to sort of dwell in these interstitial, in-between places in our life. We offer him praise because of that. At the very end of Genesis, there's this story, Joseph. You know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, you ever seen that show? Okay, that's based on these last 10, 12, 15 verses, uh, chapters rather, of Genesis. And and Joseph, if you don't remember the show or haven't read this part of Genesis for a long time, he had a really brutal life. He was well-loved by his dad, but hated by his brothers. So hated, in fact, that they sold him into slavery. So he finds himself at work for a guy and then finds himself accused of uh, sexual misconduct and thrown into prison. And after he's there for a couple of years, he, he finds himself somehow, you might think of this as a blessing, with a job. But it's a job working for the king in charge of everything at the very cusp of the worst famine they've had in centuries. Go do it. Hardest job ever. And his brothers, who sold him into slavery, they, they find him at sort of at the, uh, toward the tail end of this story, and 
and they end up relying on their brother in a way to give them food and nourishment, and they're so worried that he is now going to punish them from his position of power. And they come before him, and they beg, and they make up this story, this thing that their dad said to tell him. And he says, look, what you did, what happened, you intended for harm. But God orchestrated it and intended it for blessing. And those of you who are a little older in the room, you will know there have been times, there have been places where looking forward, you can't see the way ahead. You are in the middle of a financial, just like bottomless pit. You have no idea what to do. Your marriage is on absolute rocks. You can't find a way to stick and move into a, a healthier place in your relationships. You are in an intractable problem with a coworker or partner in, in employment. And you cannot figure it out. You've, you've had in your 20s, you had four jobs that were all just awful jobs. You hated all of them. And, and now here you are a little later in life and you look back and what have you discovered? God was in all of it. Friends, those of you who find yourselves stuck in a place right now, ask someone who's older than you what it was like when they went through something similar. And what they'll say is this. They won't use the word interstitial. Now they might. (laughs) But what they would have said is, you know what, that was really hard. And as I tried to live under my own power and understand this thing, it was so confusing. But as I look back, What I see is a God who took these mysteries that I could not understand and now he's revealed them to me and he's made known his great care and mercy for me in a way that I never could have anticipated. This is what Paul is talking about for the church, for these unified people, and this is what he's saying, I believe, to you. That there are mysteries where we find ourselves stuck But that does not mean that God is not working. It simply means that God is in the midst of revealing His character and glory to us that it might be made known to us in due course and due time. For the Lord is not slow as we understand slowness. So we praise God for a strengthening gospel. We praise God for an interstitial gospel. And we praise God for a contagious gospel. Paul uses this really sort of interesting and uh, unique phrase here at the very end. He says all these things about the mystery interstitial we just talked about, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. They might have the obedience that comes from faith. Don't we usually want to turn that around? We want there to be, and we want to be, we want to have a, a faith that, that comes from all of our own strength and obedience. But we already covered that. Strength comes from God, not from us. This is obedience that comes from faith. We trust first. And friends, if I may be so bold, here's, here's my gospel. My gospel is that Jesus as the Word of God carefully and lovingly knit together His creation. And that included you. 
But as we survey what we know about ourselves and about our own hearts and what we can read in the paper, what we know is that the world is in decay, that it is broken, that we have chosen to reject God for the ways of mankind. And in that way, there is no redemption. There might be improvement. We might be able to go from the rotary phone to the iPhone, but there is not redemption. And out of his great love for us, God came in the flesh. For humanity must fix this problem, but it's so big, only God can fix this problem. So God came in the flesh, marrying divinity and humanity, that we might know redemption. And as we trust him, what ends up happening is is the righteousness of Jesus Christ gets imputed to us. We get to be declared righteous, not because of our own work, but because of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. And now it's not just that we have been identified in his death, but we also have been identified in his life. The kind of life that Jesus had can, can now also be our life. It's a contagious kind of a life. What was true of Jesus is now becoming, it's what's becoming true of us. Theologians call these things about Jesus Christ that can be true of us, the communicable attributes of God. I was going to say the gospel is communicable, but I thought maybe that was a step too far. But the more that we find ourselves trusting God, the more we find ourselves in relationship with Him, the more we find ourselves seeking to identify with Him and His heart, the more what's true of Jesus can also be true of us. Here's just a sample of the communicable attributes of God that can be true of us. Jesus was holy, loving, good, just, merciful, Gracious, faithful, trustful, patient, and wise. I want to be those things. How can I be those things? By being obedient to the trust I already have in Christ. That's where it begins. We have a gospel that's contagious. The, the more we find ourselves sinking our, our, our teeth and our arms into the hope of the gospel, the, the more we find our character can um, exude what's true of Jesus Christ. You know this is true in lots of other avenues. I'm just going to choose one, and that's the, this other covenant relationship of marriage. Not all of you are married in the room, I get it, but probably you can imagine that this is true, even if you've never been married. The longer that I find myself married to my beautiful bride, the the more that I find my life sort of finding its way, sort of being yielded and wielded into what it is that she needs, the more that I love her and discover more about her, the more I want to please her, the more I want my life to be constrained in a way that will honor her. I'm not always very good at it. I could tell you lots of stories, and Amy could tell you even more. 
But here are some, just some tiny little examples I thought of this morning as I um, was thinking about this. When I uh, was an undergrad, I worked at a preschool where we had to change di- diapers for a couple of years. And I don't know how this happened, um, but over the years that I worked at that preschool, I never changed a single diaper. Not once. Do you know why? It's gross. I found a way to sort of be out of the room or like go play with some other kid. Whatever it was, I was not doing that job. But because it was my own beautiful daughter who celebrates her birthday tomorrow, because I was married to um, my beautiful wife who was already working so hard, I, I found myself almost willingly, longingly wanting to take care of hope that Amy might have a bit of a break. Eric, could you please help? Yes. Will you change this diaper? Yeah. I'd love to. We don't change diapers in our house anymore, but another thing that's true of my wife is when she comes in the door, when she's been working and I've um, been working, if I, if I beat her there, if I'm able in any way to do it, she, she needs a little more feng shui than I do as she walks into the house. She needs to have things feel a little bit more in order. So if I'm able to beat her and I'm able to do it and if I'm able to stay in front of the tornado of our kids, I'm I'll do my best to make sure the kitchen's clean from the chaos of breakfast. I'll, I'll make sure that um, all the pillows that the dogs have knocked off the couch again are put back up on the couch. I'll do my best to sort of sweep all the dust and mire and dirt that our kids just seem to just exude out of their pores. And I do that as an expression of love. I find myself wanting to have my, my obedience constrained by the love that I have for my wife. And what's true of this sort of relationship in this small, tiny way where I often fail is is also true of the way we get to know and follow and step into the contagiousness of following Jesus Christ. The more we allow ourselves to follow Him, to step into relationship with Him, discover more and more what's right and beautiful about Him, the, the more our faith grows, the more we find our obedience growing because being connected to Christ is contagious when it comes to holy life. We find ourselves taking on the communicable attributes of God. Holiness, patience, joy, forgiveness, and more. That's what we find in this tiny little doxology. We find praise for a gospel that is strengthening for a gospel that is equal to all the interstitial in-between times in our life. We praise God for God who allows us to, to exude his character that's contagious in his love. You're about to go out into the world. Just a few more minutes, out we go. And this is a pivot. This is a moment. might be the end. might be the middle for you. But throughout this series, what we're asking you to do is to take just a moment, just these moments right now, Joe, if you could come up, and spend a little bit of time doing your own 
writing of a doxology? What is your doxology? What, what is God doing in the midst, in the middle of whatever happening in your life? So we're going to have a little bit of music, and I'm going to invite you to sort of write your own in that pattern we've been giving to you. There's these little cards, hopefully you were handed, and if you can't find it because they're a little, um, sometimes they're easy to get lost, just write in your bulletin. Address God. Mention the, the attributes that uh, is true of him that you so desperately need him to know that he's active. And offer him the praise and the glory. And we'll, we'll come together in worship in just a couple minutes. But just spend some time writing your own doxology.